Welcome to another episode of Jewish Wisdom on JTV. Today we are going to be talking about marriage, or rather how to have a successful marriage. And uh, it's going to be particularly, I suppose, relevant to me because I am not yet married. And uh, I guess it'd be good to go into marriage being prepared rather than halfway into marriage and realizing that you've got lots to figure out and things that you should have known beforehand. Um, so given all that, I'm extremely delighted to be joined by two people who have just come up with a new book called Not A Partnership, which is a book all about marriage. And it has a slightly uh, head-scratching title, Not A Partnership. You'd expect marriage to be all about partnership. So I'm sure they're going to explain uh, what uh, their book is all about and what the premise of the book is. Um, so we're joined by two people, uh, two co-authors of the book, Rabbi Todd Jacobs and Rabbi Dr. Peter Lynn. So Rabbi Todd Jacobs is director of the David Robinson Institute for Jewish Heritage in Jerusalem. And prior to doing that, um, both teaching and counseling students. Um, he enjoyed a, a very distinguished career, actually, which more is explained on their Not A Partnership website, uh, on Wall Street as a leading authority on telecommunications. Um, and then Rabbi Dr. Peter Lin, uh, who also uh, served as the Dean of Students at the David Robertson Institute for Jewish Heritage, um, and also has uh, a lot of background um, in psychology, uh, specifically an MA in Applied Positive Psychology um, from the University of Pennsylvania. So thank you so much for joining us both uh, today. Pleasure to be here. Great, thank you so much. From, from Jerusalem. Um, can you just tell us, what is the Dean, this, uh, this uh, sorry, this the David Robertson Institute for Jewish Heritage, what is that? Sure, um, it, it is colloquially known as Machon Yaakov. Ah, that I've heard of. It's a, it's a yeshiva for uh, young men, uh, specifically. It's kind of a boutique yeshiva for uh, best and brightest top, boy, you know, top young men between the ages of about 21 and up to about 40, who typically are defined as Anglo-speaking, you know, Anglo um, well-educated in terms of their secular uh, educations, generally speaking, professional backgrounds, academic backgrounds. The one thing that they tend to share is that they never studied any um, real Jewish sources deeply for any immersive, you know, for in, in, in an immersive setting for any long period of time. So these are guys who basically say, I want to take off either one year or two years. Our, our program is either one year minimum or two years maximum and go and immerse ourselves in Jewish philosophy, Talmud, character building, marriage preparation, leadership, Hebrew language, you know, kind of the works. Um, and it's a, it's a training ground for those guys to then go back into their careers, back into their lives, back into their families, uh, and, uh, but be equipped in a Jewish way. Fantastic. Well, I actually, I, I didn't know that that's how it was uh, known as, because I have heard the, the name Machen Yaakov, and I've heard great things about it. So, um, yeah, I'd be interested to actually to, to, to come visit you guys when, uh, the next time in Jerusalem. Uh, once the borders open, please God. Um, so let's jump into your book, which is about marriage. And I'm very, you've got someone who's got a very keen ear to listen and learn, learn, learn here. Um, let's just start off by talking about the title. It's called Not a Partnership. My understanding is marriage is a partnership. I'll, I'll give you a spoiler alert. The spoiler alert is that properly done, marriage is a partnership. It's the ultimate partnership. But I, I remember that something like 35 years ago, Rabbi Akiva Tatz, who I know is someone who's been on your program before, um, he, in a, in a classic uh, class that he gave on marriage, um, 
said the words, you have to understand that marriage is not a partnership. That stuck with me for decades uh, in, the, in terms of building my own marriage. And then it stuck with me even more when Rabbi Lynn and I began uh, working at Mahon Yaakov and counseling guys as they were going through the process of getting ready for marriage, getting married, early stages of marriage. And we saw the same problem cropping up over and over again, which Rabbi Tatz had cited you know, a few decades before. And that is most people treat partnerships as I've got my rights and responsibilities, you've got your rights and responsibilities. And so I spend all of my time, instead of thinking about what I'm contributing, I spend most of my time thinking about what you're not doing in terms of holding up your end of the bargain. And so every time I do something good, I look at you and say, what's your end? How, where, where, where am I going to get something back from you? And it happens to be that from research I did on Wall Street, most partnerships in the world of business fail for exactly that reason. Not because they have bad part, not because they have bad businesses, but because they have bad attitudes. And those are very decisively negative in terms of a way to approach um, you know, entering into a relationship with somebody else, whether it's in the world of business and in terms of what we're talking about tonight in terms of marriage. So that is a, that is a disastrous mindset to walk into marriage with. And, and what we have uh, been espousing, and it comes from classic Jewish sources, and it comes from Rabbi Lynn's work in positive psychology, is that marriage is all about what I can give and what I can create through my work and through my contribution and through my giving, not what I'm trying to get back from you in return for everything that I'm doing tit for tat. And Rabbi Lynn, do you think this is something that, you know, do, do you think most people walk into marriage, both in the Jewish and non-Jewish world, not recognizing that they should primarily be, you know, how, what, what are the misconceptions we have? Do we, are, are we not walking into marriage thinking, I'm in this to, to be a giver? Well, I'll, I'll tell you like this. I'll, maybe I'll take the question in a little bit of a different direction. Probably one of the biggest things that we invest, you know, most of our time in, you know, looking back over the past 15 years with our students is the world of marriage education. And I'm going to use the words you said, walk into. What we find is a fascinating thing. If you look at our professional lives, we spend so much time getting ready for that professional life. There is my high school, my undergraduate degree. I go for a master's. I get in that, into that career. Then I'm going, once I'm in that career, I go to, you know, boot camps to move to the next stage and I have reviews and I'm learning more and I'm advancing. And what's fascinating that we have seen is that if you ask people what's the most important thing in their life, they're going to say their family. And at the core of that family is obviously your marriage. But what we've seen is that it's the most important thing out there, but yet people do very, very little to actually prepare themselves to get ready for marriage. And then once they're in a marriage, they do very little to figure out how can I actually become a better spouse? And what we have dedicated so much time to is really the world of marriage education, because there is so much that can be done and needs to be done before people get married. So they really understand what is this thing called marriage? What does it mean to be a great spouse? How do I deal with difficulties? And then once people do get married, there is so much training to be done to figure out how can I become better at this? So I'm going to go back to what the, the words you said, walk into. I think that it's an unfortunate problem, but people go into this area of life in a very unprepared manner. And then once they're in it, they basically just say, hopefully it's going to work out. And if it doesn't work out, it means what? It wasn't meant to be. Right. So Rabbi Jacob and Rabbi Lynn, before we get into 
what you believe are some of the most important ingredients for having a successful marriage and having the right frame of mind when you start this marriage rather than just walk into it. Um, I, I have to pick up on something, Rabbi Jacobs, that you said in your initial um, answer, which is that you said that people often, you know, the, a mistake people make when they go into marriage is that they think about what are you not giving me? They're constantly thinking, how, you know, I, this isn't what I expect from marriage. Why aren't you being more this or that or more flexible or more providing or whatever? And I definitely recognize that as being an important uh, part of relationship that you should be giving oriented. But one thing, and I can only speak about this really, I mean, I, I've, I've dated, but I, I'm, I'm, uh, I'm speaking more about this through the lens of friendship, I guess, but I assume it applies equally to uh, marriage, is that I think there is, or wouldn't you say, or would you agree with me that there, there's a danger sometimes in total self-annulment? In other words, where you constantly just will excuse the behavior of someone else or just try and let it slide. I feel like sometimes if you do that too much because you just want to be giving oriented, you just want to give and you'll let things slide even if they upset you, there's a danger that resentment can build up. And as, as, as easy as it might be to say, well, you've just got to work on that resentment, I feel like I always feel like there's a balance between letting things go and being giving oriented and also having a, demanding a level of self-respect. So could you maybe just shed some light? Sure, and, and, and that's a, that is a, an amazing question and you're, you're hitting it right, right on the head. Um, a, a, a functional marriage with a functional person is not about I give until I can't give anymore and I turn myself into a shmata and I have no self-respect. It is rather a feeling that that the other person's happiness, the other person's well-being, the other person's development is a, is in a sense my responsibility to help make happen. Now that's now it, obviously if the person I'm married to is somebody who is dysfunctional, has deep emotional problems, is hugely selfish, it could be that it's so dysfunctional that as I begin giving, it will not create that virtuous cycle that we usually do see um, created when you're dealing with two just basically healthy human beings. The, the, the virtuous cycle is that I have, to, I have to enter without thinking about did you give to me? I'm not going to give to you unless you gave to me today. I'm not going to give to you this week unless I feel like you've been giving to me. If I enter my marriage on a daily basis, on a weekly basis, or at the beginning of my marriage, or even if I'm trying to fix my marriage, I can actually, in a sense, say, I'm going to take responsibility on myself to kickstart this marriage. How am I going to kickstart it? How am I going to kickstart the new phase of my relationship or this new relationship altogether? I'm going to take upon myself that I want to make your happiness my business. And when I start giving, what tends to happen is not that I give and I give and I give and there's no appreciation, there's nothing that comes back. What tends to be that if I'm giving without thinking about what I'm getting in return, the natural response system of the other person tends to be to give back. And we've seen marriages go from having negative cycles of what'd you do for me, but what'd you do for me, but what'd you do for me, but you started this and you started that, to, oh my gosh, you know, you, you, what you've been doing for me is amazing. And I just feel that I want to do more for you. And th the funny thing is, it's like, you know, again, I'm a, I'm a, I'm a Wall Street investor by, by training, although it's you know, morphed into through a, for a securitist path, um, becoming a rabbi and dealing a lot with people's marriages and issues. But that sounds like a whole separate interview in and of itself. How that? <laughs> yeah, that's a, that's, a, that's a whole story. But one of, one of the greatest investments in the world that we have found is giving to another person. When you give to another person, they feel that you've given to them. 
the most amazing thing, and without being cynical about it or manipulative about it, the person tends to give back to you in, in a way that is even greater than the way that you, and, and you, that's what we call the virtuous cycle. If I'm willing to take responsibility on myself and I'm willing to give to you, I'm willing to do for you, nine times out of 10, the spouse is going to respond with, with, some, kind of a, with some kind of giving back. And that, that sparks a whole unbelievable you know, cycle of, of building each other and caring about each other, and making each other happy, which we just see over and over. What about if there's a level of in the partner, or I'm even going to apply this to like, let's say a friend or, you know, other people in life, because I think this, some of this wisdom can apply to all kinds of relationships. Uh, what about if there's just a level of people taking your giving for granted, or there's just a lack of conscientiousness on the part of the person you're giving to? So I think that when when it when it comes to a marriage, let's say, or a relationship that you're going to really invest time in and effort into, a person has to make sure you're dealing with a healthy human being, that you're going to have someone who can not only receive your giving, but hopefully if the formula goes well in a healthy relationship, then automatically what will happen is Rabbi Jacob says that person will begin to give back. Um, you know, if you have situations where you're dealing with very unhealthy people, so a lot of times either the giving can never be received, you feel like you're giving and giving and giving, and you feel like the person doesn't receive anything, or you feel like you're, it's a one-way, you know, ticket, and you're not getting anything in return. So there are unhealthy relationships that are out there that can, can, can suffer with this formula. The whole point of when we're dealing with marriage is we have to make sure that we're going into this situation with a healthy partner. Now, obviously, there are times in every relationship where one person may not be in the best state. A lot of what we're going through right now during this crazy pandemic is you have, you know, this week, this spouse is having a really hard time. And the next week, the other spouse is having a really hard time. Obviously, there has to be a bigger vision that, of course, there are weeks where it may be difficult there are times where it may be stressful, but overall, if you're in a healthy relationship, you'll see that this formula really come alive where not only where will, will it be that your giving is received, but you'll also get that same kind of energy back towards you. And therefore, as Rabbi Jacob spoke about, that virtuous cycle really begins. So I'm sure the book is going to elaborate on my next question in you know, masses of detail, but could you outline for me and for our viewers what you believe are some of the most important ingredients to a successful marriage and perhaps maybe emphasize some of the ones that we might not have thought to emphasize? We, uh, we certainly have found that the mindset that you walk into marriage with is of supreme importance. In other words, we, we, we live in a world, and you asked before, you know, about religious relationships and non-religious relationships, Jewish relationships and non-Jewish relationships. What we have found is that almost, if you grew up in the West, you are, you are going to have to overcome some major odds in your relationship. Let, let me just give you, let me throw a few things out there. Um, according to the U.S. Census, uh, about nearly everybody over time will get married, but half of those marriages at least will end in divorce. Okay. Now that sounds like, okay, at least I got a 50, 50 chance, but the reality is the half that don't end in divorce, how many of those are happy and sparkling and are the center of happiness and, 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 and with intimacy and with, and with a sense of security and a sense that, you know, this person's got my back and, and, and I'm, and I'm overflowing with that kind of sparkle 
that I always dreamt of all my life that marriage would provide. Very few. So many of us, first of all, grew up in homes, which if we were lucky enough that maybe they were still married, our parents, I mean, what were the chances that the marriage was a good one and a sparkling one? So if you, if you actually like think about it, most people enter into marriage with very little in terms of actual role modeling that they've seen. And then you add on to that this kind of romance phase of life that people think is the definition of marriage, which in Kabbalistic terms, and, yeah, but I mean, in Kabbalistic terms and in Jewish terms, the whole romance phase, I, I don't want to call it a false phase. It's not false. It's very real, but it's extremely powerful. It's very bright light and it doesn't last. It is something which is there to burn into, into our reality, the space and the, and, and, the, and the vision and the possibility that this person can be somebody that I can have an ecstatic happy with, happiness with. But if I think that that level of electricity is gonna last, that is disastrous. And unfortunately, romance novels, movies, television, what we've seen, what our friends talk about, what magazines talk about, what everything, what, what we have been basically brainwashed in, in the Western world is that marriage is this ecstatic romantic thing, which, in re and by the way, every, every romance movie ends at that point, right? Boy meets girl, they go through all kinds of problems. And then finally at the end, they get back together. They fall into each other's arms. They're going to live happily ever after the curtain comes down. Marriage begins the next day when the curtain comes back up and they say to each other, they say to each other, now what? Oh, wow. I, I, she's not quite as cute as I thought she was. He's not quite as funny as she thought he was. And, and maybe uh, he's a little rougher around the edges than she noticed. And maybe she's a little more selfish than he thought. And, and there's this point at which most people say, life has gypped me again. I've been fooled again. And, and therefore, I got to go start again. You know, I, I, if I got married, I, I guess this is going to end. It's going to be one of those things. Rabbi, can I, just, can I just interrupt you for a second? Yeah, sure, do, do sure. you, are you saying, because of what the statistics show us, are you saying that actually it's very challenging to have a long-term, successful, fulfilled relationship because, the because of what the statistics show? Or are you saying, no, anyone can achieve it, it's totally within everyone's grasp, and that people are just getting it wrong? Okay, so I think it's a false dichotomy. In other words, I, in other words can you get it, and can everybody get it? The answer is, well... Maybe, but the odds are stacked against you unless you do a lot of work and some preparation and change your mindset. And my whole point is that is that because we have no role models and because we've been brainwashed into this vision of romance equals marriage, romance equals love, when in reality, that's just a starting point for building real love and building a real relationship. So the answer is anybody can have a great relationship if they put in the time and the work and they change their mindset and they overcome the odds of having been brought up in our Western culture, in which marriage is in such a state of disrepair. It's in a terrible state, but we, be but we believe 100%, get the big picture right, and then learn the implementation of practical steps, and you can do it. And that's why the book that we wrote is half big picture and half practical implementation. So could you give me just an example of, of, of some of the practical implementation, some of the tips, so our viewers can get a flavor of what this book has to offer in terms of, you know, practical implementation advice? Sure. So I'll, I'll share that with you, that if you look at the book, we basically say that the PDF manual of a marriage is centered around the idea of giving. Okay, so that's a very nice theoretical idea. So what we do in the second half of the book is we show you four different avenues 
of how you can bring giving into your relationship. And um, we call them the four pillars of giving. So let me give you um, an example of one of them. One of them, we speak about the idea of keeping your marriage fresh. What happens? Everything in life has a certain newness, whether it's the world of your brand new iPhone, a new computer, a new job. And like Rabbi Jacobs was speaking about, at some point things get old and we want something new. And what happens in relationships is we get used to things. And what's fascinating is you see couples that when they first get engaged, they make tons of effort for each other. When they're newly married, they, they go out of their way to smell good, look good, act a certain way, you name it. And then what happens is very fast, people stop really making an effort to create a certain chemistry, to create a certain energy in their marriages. And what we speak about is that one of the ways of giving to your spouse is you going out of your way to keep the relationship fresh based on things that you can do as an individual. And if there's all of a sudden uh, marriage where now you have each spouse going out of their way to do very practical things that we speak about in the book to keep your marriage fresh, all of a sudden you have this ideal formula that marriage is great in the first year, it's even better five years down the road, 10 years down the road is awesome, 15 years and so on. And, and what happens is that relationship is one that gets better and better with time. So that's an example of one of our four pillars of giving, which is called keeping it fresh, that one of the ways I can give to my wife is for me to go out of my way in behaviors, in, in certain emotional realities, to do everything I can to keep that freshness alive in our marriage. And there are practical things that can be done in order to make that happen. Mm -hmm. So that's a, one of, let's say that's one of our four pillars. And then we have three other pillars as well that all have practical examples of how to keep that alive. Right. And I have a, a slightly dark question to ask, but I just, you know, I feel like I'm sure you'd have some uh, uh, light to shed on it. Um, how bad does it have to get in a relationship uh, for a couple to say, we have to part ways? Uh, you know, there is a, uh, one, one, of our, one of our mentors, um, Rabbi Beryl Gershenfeld, his mother was, um, was a world famous psychologist and she, um, she, and she wrote, uh, she wrote like the college textbook on psychology for basic psychology. And she did tons of work for decades. And she, had, she said something which was very profound. And that is, she said about 10% of marriages are made in heaven, which is to say you have two people who have such good character, are so giving, are so bright, are so optimistic, and just have that ability to just, they just seem like everything is just amazing. Then you've got about 10% of marriages, which almost no matter what you do, are so dysfunctional and are so, the either it's somebody's bad character or both have bad character or, or somehow the two are just toxic for each other, even though they might've been okay for somebody else. That's about 10% of marriages as well, which cannot be cured under any circumstances. But what's interesting is what that leaves is 80% of marriages are a function of what you put into them. And, that's a, and we have seen in our work, all the work that we've done, there's no question, once in a while we have seen marriages which absolutely, you just say, 
young man, young lady, you know, you've given it a try, you've gone to therapy, but you're several standard deviations away from like normalcy in your marriage. And, 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 and the longer it goes on in some sense, dysfunctionally, the harder it is to, you know, that so much water has gone under the, uh, under the bridge, so to speak. There are marriages which become so dysfunctional, they have to break up, but it's not a large percent. It's not a large percentage. And we have seen so many marriages where rocky beginnings and needing to get used to each other and, and needing reminders and re-education and needing some practical tools have gotten people back on track. And we've seen that one spouse, by the way, this is the most, by the way, we have a whole chapter, Rabbi, Rabbi Lynn mentioned that we have four pillars of giving. One of the pillars of giving, we think maybe the most critical one, is called It All Depends on Me, which is to say that I can, I can basically change the tide even if my spouse is not ready to do that work. So, so once again, if someone's ready to do the work, willing to do the work, we have seen that in about 80% of the cases, even if it was not made in heaven, that people can save their marriages. And what we, by the way, one of the things that got us to write this book was we look back after 15 years of dealing with our students through, you know, all these phases of marriage. And we realized that the divorce rate amongst our students was about one-tenth, one-tenth the average divorce rate for the United States. And we thought, wow, I mean, there, there, there is something that can be taught in terms of how to approach marriage and how to behave in marriage and how to work on marriage when it's not working perfectly and how to make it really great if it's working well, but you want it to be spectacular. We, we found that these things can be taught. And that's why we wrote the book. And what have you found have been the most effective methods for resolving disputes? Um, I, I, I think that one of the 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 lessons we speak about the most is the world of communication if you go to any marriage seminar they're going to speak about this topic of communication and most disputes come from poor communication we spoke about this earlier in the interview there are times we have to speak about difficult things it's so one of the things that we see is that most disputes come from a world of bad communication any marriage seminar you go to any anything we'll always discuss at some point communication and in any in any healthy marriage there are times we have to speak about what's bothering you or something that's on your mind or something that has been frustrating you for a period of time that is normal and healthy the problem is if you don't go about that in the right way all of a sudden it's toxic and it's a disaster and what i'll do right now is if i had to take every marriage seminar out there that I've been exposed to, and I've just seen the research, and I'll try and boil it down that there are two fundamental points behind all healthy communication. And what we find is if you can get these two points right, you can have any relationship, but especially a marriage, where those difficult conversations can happen, and it can lead to, towards more growth rather than a total downfall. Those two points are, number one, is the world of timing. Most people, when they have conversations with others, and especially about difficult topics, it's always the wrong time. We get into a mindset that we think that things have to happen right now. We live in the world of urgency. And it's very rare that things are really urgent in our lives that need to be spoken about right now. And what we find is that if you can find the right time of when to have that conversation, let's say your spouse does something that really hurts you or you're really frustrated by. If you can say, wow, my, my spouse is in the middle of a huge you know, court case this week or a huge project at work 
and I see she's really stressed out. Let me wait till the weekend, you know, on a Sunday afternoon when it's quiet. Maybe we'll talk about that then. And when you just choose the timing properly, when it's right for both of you, it doesn't mean five years later, but just give it a little bit of time and choose a time where you're out of the heat of the moment. It's the right time for the two of you to have that conversation. It can be a total game changer. Number two is how you say it. There's a, there's a famous kind of a debate, which is when a person communicates, how much of your communication is actually your spoken word? So the debate is either seven or 8%, but everything else is all of the energy and your tone of voice and the body language around you. And all of us have been in situations before where someone's saying something to you, but every other part of their body, every other part of their body language is saying the exact opposite. And even more than that, a lot of times we can say things to our spouses where it's in attack mode or it's blaming another person. So number two is really about how you say it. And if you say it in a way where not only are you communicating in a healthy and open manner where you know, that smile on your face is actually genuine and real, but you're also speaking about a language of we, you're speaking, about, speaking in a language of building together. So you communicate properly. So all of a sudden you can take the most difficult conversations out there that need to happen, that shouldn't be swept under the carpet. But if you do them now, number one, the right time, and number two, in the right way, that can be such a, you know, an, upward, a, an upward spiral in your marriage. All of us know when you have great conversations that are difficult with people, but you feel that it was really a respectful, powerful interaction, you feel so close to the other person. So what we find is that where, where most things go wrong is people not sticking to these two fundamental principles of communication. Wow. That's really, uh, really, really fascinating. And um, it sounds like it's just a small insight into uh, uh, the kind of uh, wisdom and, and content that you have in your book. Um, so just before we finish, I do want to ask one final question, um, which is a topic within this whole topic that I hear um, uh, is a, it's a real topic of contention, actually, which is the question of the effects of couples moving in together before they get married. Um, and I hear some people, there's a real argument about this. On the one hand, people say, I mean, obviously, if you're ultra religious uh, in the Jewish world, that wouldn't work because of all kinds of uh, religious issues of being in, in a room together and not touching all that kind of stuff. But, you know, let's just say a lot of people, they'll, they'll say, you know, this could be a good test to see what it's like living together. Or they'll just say it's convenient. Um, and I, on the other hand, I hear people saying, even if you are, you know, going to be you know, the religious issues aren't, aren't uh, you know, they're not a concern for you. You're not at that level. Um, some people say this just is not a good idea. And I wanted to know your reflections on that. And, you know, just if you think it's a good idea or not. Sure. Let, let's take it totally outside the religious context altogether. You don't even have to touch anything in terms of religious law. Um, it's It has proven to be not a good idea. Uh, it has proven to be in no way statistically an indicator of the ability to stay married, the fact that people moved in together, lived together, had all the experiences together. There's absolutely not a shred of evidence that shows that figuring out that level of compatibility will actually be a precursor to a more successful marriage. That's, that's one statistic. Let me give you another statistic. 
How about people that got married one time and then failed, and now are getting married again? You would think, wow, they got married, they realized all the things that they don't want, all the things that the, you know that they, that they didn't like in that spouse, the next time they're going to find a different kind of spouse. Guess what? The divorce rates for second marriages are higher than they are for first marriages. So there is something about, but and, and that, now let me throw in one little Jewish twist, which is just interesting. Not not in, not in any kind of a not in any kind of a way to harangue anybody, but in in Jewish marriages, the commitment to being married actually precedes the physical moving in together and being man and wife together. In other words, there's there there happen to be two parts in Jewish marriage. One's called kiddushin, and one is called nisuin. Kiddushin is betrothal. And Nisuin is the actual marriage part where the two of them are now man and wife, so to speak, and can build a home together, live together, have intimacy together, etc. Now, we do all of that in the same ceremony now. It used to be that they were split apart by a year. And people were married and needed a divorce to get out of it with full commitment with, without ever having had that contact uh, and that physical contact and that, that, that experience of each other. And yet marriage has been a pretty, you know, you can kind of almost say what you want about Orthodox Judaism, but marriage tends to work fairly well uh, in that context. And I'm only bringing that as an example that the commitment came before the actual living together, and that built stronger marriages, not weaker marriages. So whether you're looking at the the statistics of people who live together before they get married, or people who, who, who actually are married with one person then try to get married to somebody else, the statistics are actually very much against it. And, and why would that be? I think it has to do with having your cake and eating it too and having no responsibility um, in marriage. And maybe this is a male problem more than, a, more than a, a women's problem. It could well be that men love to have the, the, the benefits of marriage without having the responsibilities of marriage. And, and when you then put the responsibility which comes on with that marriage ceremony and that contract and that, you know, that legal document that now binds you to each other, um, that, is, that can be an internal mindset game changer. And that's something that, that many people really, really, that, at that point, that's when people begin failing in their, in their relationships. Living together, you know, it, it does not seem in any way to be a, a good indicator of what comes later. Do you think it's and do you think it's potentially even detrimental because it gives people a false sense of what the marriage is going to be like? Well, it, it, it not only gives a false sense, but it also it, it also tends to be that once again, if I can have the benefits of marriage without the responsibilities of marriage, so what happens is I don't really take that commitment to you know being there for that spouse. By the way, you know a lot of things happen in life. First of all, people get older. People are not as attractive physically, you know, like in that snapshot when 10 years in, 20 years in, 30 years in as they were, you know, in that in those first couple of years, people become ill. There are financial setbacks. I mean, God forbid, but there are lots of things that happen. Yeah. If, if, I'm, if I'm living with somebody, I'm not, I'm not signed up for any of that. I'm not signed up for that. Why, why, would I, why would I take care of somebody who became ill, somebody who I had certain financial expectations for, someone who used to be pretty and witty, and now they're like a little older and not so witty? Like the only, it's, it's a, only a deep level of commitment that keeps me in that relationship. That commitment tends to come not with just, hey, let's move in together because it's comfortable and we're really attracted to each other. That yeah. comes, it, it tends to come from a, an absolute dedication I am dedicated. I am there. I am signing. I am there for you through thick and thin, no matter what's going to happen. And by the way, I, I find that to be important just in life generally, understanding that, I, you know, to, 
understanding that life is full of imperfections and difficulties and challenges and you know sometimes people would just have this idea of it's of course it's great to dream and of course it's it's fine to want to have the best uh and and most straightforward life possible um but f just on a personal level as well as in a relationships level an understanding and a bracing for the fact that there may well be bumps along the road is the best way to i think to to handle those bumps uh, but anyway um Thank you so much for joining us. The book is called Not A Partnership. We'll post a link in the description so that you can buy it. And this book really is for anyone. Jewish, not Jewish, religious, secular. Marriage uh, is something that everyone, uh, uh, well, most people <laughs> aspire to. And so, and this book is directed really at anyone. So uh, Rabbi Jacobs and Rabbi Lynn, uh, thank you so much for joining us. And it's been really insightful and I'm sure our viewers are gonna gain a lot from it. So thank you very much. To stay up to date with JTV content, click subscribe here if you're on YouTube and hit the alarm bell. And if you're on Facebook, hit the like button and under following, click see first. If you enjoy watching JTV content and want to help us continue to grow, please consider making a donation to us by clicking here.